This is the Melungeon Voices Podcast, presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. My name is Liz Malone. I'm the podcast producer, and I'm here with the presidents of the MHA, Heather and Alina. Heather, how is the hostess with the mostess? <laughs> Aw, I'm doing very well, Liz. How about you? I'm doing <laughs> splendidly for an episode two. We are moving. Yes. Here we go. We are in season four for sure. So... <laughs> Uh, before we roll into our guest for this week, you have an update from a past MHA Melungeon Voices podcast guest. And tell us who we are doing an update for. I do. I'm very excited for this one. Beverly Scarlett, our guest from season one, episode two, wanted to let us all know that she is in the midst of writing and researching a new book. Stay tuned for more details to come on the MHA's website and Facebook page, as well as follow Beverly's Facebook page called Indigenous Memories for all the update latest. Well, that is fantastic news. Congratulations, Beverly. We await your new book. Uh, good luck with your researching and your writing. Um, it is quite the task and uh, always have so much respect because I, as you know, I work in in publishing, in the publishing industry when, uh, when I'm not doing all this wonderful, <laughs> fantastic work with you here on this podcast. So I always have so much respect for people who are able to take the time and really come through with a finished book product. So um, so good luck to Beverly. We know it's going to be amazing and uh, and we will keep everybody posted once we learn more. Exactly. Very excited. So on to this week's guest. Uh, what do we have lined up for episode two, Heather? Well, we've got a episode two is going to be a very fascinating episode. We have with us Professor Emerita, Dr. Kathy J. Lyday, has taught first year writing, linguistics, grammar, the history of the ling English language, American literature, Introduction to Literature, Literature of the Holocaust, and Appalachian Literature at Elon University for 41 years. Her research subjects include Appalachian authors, Melungeons in Literature, Holocaust Literature, and Language Use in Society. Dr. Lyde has been a member of the Melungeon Heritage Association since 1994 and is the current MHA Board Vice President. She is also the co-author of two historical novels and is currently researching the third book in the series. In this week's episode, Kathy discusses the author Will Allen Dromgul. We explore who she was and the reasons why she is perceived as such a controversial figure within the Melungeon community. And as always, it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting dialogue between you and uh, in, in this week's episode with Kathy. And my goodness, that is a lot of literature in one episode. I'm very uh, impressed that you did not get tongue-tied on one literature. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> Less editing for Liz. <laughs> See, I'm looking out for you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad somebody is. <laughs> And uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's take a listen. 
Hi, Kathy. How are you today? Hi, Heather. I'm fine. Burning up in North Carolina. How about you? <laughs> yes, I'm not too far from you, so I, I feel it too. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, I always start off our episodes with this question. How did you learn about the Melungeon people, or when was the first time you heard the word Melungeon? It's an interesting question. I grew up in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, so um, I guess when I was in middle school, the big article came out about the Melungeons, and it was all over the Knoxville News Sentinel, and I read it, fascinated by it. The play, the outdoor drama, was when I was... Uh, junior, senior in high school or so. And I always wanted my dad to take us up there to uh, see it because I thought it was just really interesting. I was interested in in this community. Uh, and he said, no, there's nothing up there. It's Sneedville. It's too far to drive. It was during the gas crisis. There's no place to stay, blah, blah, blah. So I never got to see the outdoor drama. But I always, from middle school on, I kind of knew that there was this group of people up there that had been maybe a little controversial. Um, most of the people that I knew had never heard of them, didn't know them. Uh, the ones that did sort of said, yeah, they're not such nice people, you know, these kinds of things. And I thought, oh, that's that's not good. I don't, I don't like that very much. Um and it wasn't until I got to um, school, at, I went to school at Tennessee Tech University, and I was doing a folklore paper, and I thought, I'm going to do a research paper on the Melungeons. So this was back in 1974, 75. So research then meant going to the library, looking at microfilm, um, doing all that kind of stuff. And I ran into these articles by William Alan Drumgool. And I thought, oh, these were kind of interesting. These were the arena articles, not the earlier articles. And the second article that she published in the arena was all about the genealogy. And I was fascinated by that. And then later on, I found out that she, he was a she and had gone up into the mountains when she was like 29 years old. And I became very fascinated with this person. Jean Patterson Bible's book had also come out earlier, um, and I met her at the Museum of Appalachia, got a signed copy. So I was just sort of building my Melungeon library from that point on. I had also encountered the book The Hawks Done Gone by Mildred Hahn because she was a Nashville writer. She lived in Nashville, born in East Tennessee, um, and I just thought it was the weirdest book I'd ever read, strangest book I'd ever read and did not do a great service to the Melungeons either. So I, I sort of built, started building my interest, and then my interest in the Melungeons turned into my interest in Drumgold. You were the leading expert on the author, Will Allen Drumgold. Who is she, and where is she from? Wow. The second question is a lot easier. She's from, <laughs> she was born in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1860, um, in a, a family that was not rich and not poor, um, her father was a lawyer. She comes from a long line of theologians. Her father married a woman, had four children. His wife died, so he did what every other good man would do. He married her sister and proceeded to have six more children, um, all girls. 
And the sixth one was Drumgoul. And he supposedly said, this baby's going to be named William, whatever comes out. So she was christened William and Drumgoul. And she changed her name later. It's another story uh, when she was six. She lived in Murfreesboro. Um, Her father was very old when she was born. And after her mother died, she was the only unmarried girl in the family. So the responsibility went to her to take care of her father. And she uh, started trying to find work in Nashville as a writer. She wanted to be a lawyer, but in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, women were not allowed to practice law in Tennessee. So she did the next best thing and became an engrossing clerk in the state legislature. And it is from one of the, I believe, congressmen, possibly a state senator, that she first heard about the Melungeons, uh, and in a very derogatory way. But she wrote uh, a lot of things. She lived until 1934, and her Melungeon episode (laughs) um, covers only about six months of her life. Uh, The rest of it was spent writing, gosh, over 5,000 poems, which honestly were not very good. Um, Her most famous one was one called The Bridge Builder, which is widely printed and read, and it's always anonymous, but it's not. I'm here to tell people that she wrote it. (laughs) There's proof of that. She also wrote short stories of African-American communities outside of Nashville, I'll use the word poor because that's the way that she would describe it, the poor people of Nashville, kind of a la Charles Dickens style, Uh, lots of sentimental stories. And then she has a very small collection of stories that take place in the Cumberland Mountains and in the East Tennessee Mountains, Smoky Mountains. So that's who she is. And I ended up doing my dissertation kind of as an addition of all of her mountain literature, did an analysis of the of the, all the short stories, any of the columns. She wrote a column for the Nashville Banner for 30 years called Song and Story, which and she's best known in Nashville for that, I think. So I collected everything, including the Melungeon articles um, that had anything to do with the mountains. And that became my my dissertation. So Kathy, how did you become interested in Drumgoal in the first place? Um, I think because of that folklore paper and the fact that it, you know, in 1890, it took a lot of guts for a a single woman to travel from Murfreesboro or Nashville, Tennessee to Knoxville. I think she could have gotten a train probably as far as Knoxville, maybe, not really sure. She could have gone by carriage, but it's hard to get up to Sneedville and into the Vardy Valley with four wheels these days and a car and an engine. So I imagine she probably would have gone by horseback. And there are some allusions to that. She traveled supposedly with a a male artist who was responsible for doing some of the drawings. Um, People say it's from a photograph, the the picture, the famous picture of the Melungeon sitting on the stoop with a pipe in his mouth. Yes. I believe that was an artist picture uh, that was done. But I can't find any specifics about who this person was. It was probably a man. So you add that on top of traveling alone on a horse and then traveling alone, single with a man on a horse, two horses, I presume, to, you know, to the wilds of East Tennessee in the 1890s. And that's 
pretty adventurous. And I, I always thought that she had some chutzpah, this woman. She was very small in stature. I had the good fortune to interview a woman who worked with her on the Nashville Banner before she died. Um, in fact, she was hoping that Drumgoole would retire and that she could become the book editor of the Nashville Banner. And she pulled no punches in her interview. She said a lot of people didn't like her because she was she was very strong and independent. She apparently dyed her hair red up until the day she died. She was not a political person. Uh, she was not, you know, a soapbox suffragette, as some of them were called during the time. Um, but she was very strong in her views, and she was not afraid to stand up to men. She just wasn't afraid of men. She never married. I can't find a lot of concrete evidence that she ever had any bows or, you know, significant others, although there are some tiny little snippets here and there in a personal journal that I found that that allude to a heartbreak, that something happened in her life that caused her not to get married. She was extremely close to the Sisters of St. Cecilia's Academy and the, and the nunnery, um, the cloisters in uh, Nashville, and that still exists. I've visited up there. She had a niece who joined the order, and one of her very best friends was the Mother Superior there, and she's, she wrote a beautiful epitaph for her in the Nashville Banner, and she kept they kept a room for her there. So when she wanted to come and stay and get away, that's where she went. Uh, she was not Catholic. I believe she was Episcopal, because that's kind of what her family was, but she was not, not Catholic. So she had these interesting ties to all these different people. Um, in Tennessee, and also in, in the Tennessee legislature as well. And some of her stories reflect that relationship. It sounds like she certainly had a fascinating life. So the question our listeners want to know, why is she so controversial within the Melungeon community? Well, there are these articles. <laughs> um, the first one's that I encountered were in the Boston arena. And um, Drumgoole went to school at the New England School of Expressionism in Boston, very progressive school for women. The arena was a very progressive Northern Yankee publication uh, during the early, late, late 1800s, early 1900s. And they would publish articles about women's suffrage, about abolitionists, political treatises, uh, religious treatises. And for whatever reason, the editor, who, who actually became a good friend of Drumgoole's, wanted to publish some of her stories. And so she had almost all of her stories published in the Boston arena. So when, when she wrote these Melungeon articles, they were interested in publishing them. And the articles are quite different. Um, the first two, she went up into the mountains for two weeks, we think, in 1890, in the summer of 1890. We're not sure exactly who she stayed with because she uses first names, and we're not sure she actually uses real names. In fact, for sure, I know she doesn't use all real names because no one that I've talked to who would have had relatives back then recognize any of these names. So either she didn't go there at all, which is doubtful, or she's changing the names. And that's probably what she would do. 
so she stayed there for two weeks and she came, she submitted these articles to the Nashville Sunday American, which was in a, it was a forerunner of the, of the banner. And the first one was, was pretty awful. I mean, I think she thought she was doing a, a journalist job. She wanted to be a journalist. Um, she, she put in facts, but she had no tact whatsoever. She was brutally honest. But although I think people during that time probably would have said the same things, a lot of them. In fact, I think based on what I've read in papers during that time period, people would have been even harsher than she was. But when she got up there, and you have to keep in mind that she was trained in the law by her father, just couldn't practice. When she got up into this community, she makes comments about finding dark-skinned people with white-skinned babies and white-skinned women with dark-skinned babies. And that was against the law in Tennessee at that time. And it was against her sensibilities. It was against the way that she had been brought up as a late 19th century woman in the reconstructed South. So that doesn't excuse what she wrote, but it, it may explain some of the things that she wrote. She also made some kind of, I think, mean-spirited comments about physical appearance, especially of the women and things like that. This article appeared late August 1890, and then it was followed up by another one in the first weekend of September. I've heard that there was a third one, but there's no evidence of that. Um, it's hard to find microfilm of this particular publication. And the second one does kind of end on a way that you think there might be another installment. But as of yet, I haven't, I just haven't been able to do that. This paper is not digitalized at all. You can't access it. It's really difficult hard, and hard to find. So uh, you have to go to Nashville to find it. And the copies are awful. The one that I needed was not even there. It's non-existent anymore. So I left it at that. The second articles in the arena... The first article was the damaging one. And again, the daily, the, the Sunday American would have been seen by a lot of people locally in Tennessee, but not really too far out. The Boston Arena was a different publication altogether. So it was read up and down, up and down the East Coast. It was a very popular magazine. So here out across the, you know, the pages, goes this article about this weird kind of exotic to a lot of people because this is the, the whole time of regional literature and the exotic other and let's go find out who these strange people in Appalachia are, you know, that that kind of stuff. And so everybody was entranced by that. Now, I will say that many people before Drumgoole wrote disparaging things about the Melungeons. There's no lack of that. There are tons of them. Um, and there were people, a lot of people afterwards who, you know, who wrote things about the Melungeons. And then we have the one drop rule with Plecker and, and all these other things. But I think because this was so unusual in a national, nationally read periodical and a very respected periodical that people latched onto that. The second article that appeared that spring in 1891 was actually a genealogy article. And it's very interesting, and it, it it kind of mirrors the way a lot of people feel today. Um, she goes back and she she interviews people and she asks them where their people come from and things like that. There was no genealogy 
in the in the Sunday American articles at all. So I think it's it's that first article in the arena that says all the really ugly things. And I think she felt pressured to write some of the things that she did. She never apologized for these articles. She didn't ever want to talk about them, apparently. There's no mention in her columns or anything like that. She doesn't really mention the Melungeons much in her columns at all. Um, And, of course, she didn't start writing her column until 1904, so it was a long time after this trip. I think she just wanted to sort of erase that summer (laughs) in the mountains. And I've had one person tell me that, according to their family history, they had heard that she had been jilted up there. And that's why she got, she was so nasty in her articles. I can't find any evidence. I'm a fact-based researcher. I like (laughs) to know these things. Um, If there are family histories out there, I would love to know them because I think it's, you know, I'd like to know what her interaction was with the people. There's not much evidence to that. She kept a little journal that I found parts of. And she she's scared when she goes up there. She's very frightened. She's frightened of the mountain. She's frightened of the people. Um, She talks about uh, one time when she had to hide her notes that she was taking because the children, she felt the children of the people that she was staying with uh, were spying on her. And she was staying out in a, like a stable. She wasn't even staying in, you know, in the house. She, she makes some very pointed comparisons between the Melungeons that she met in Blackwater Valley and the Appalachian Mountaineers that she had met throughout her life because she spent a lot of time traveling, sort of like Mary Noel's Murphy. Um, but Drumgoole actually went into these places and and met with people in, you know, in the Smoky Mountains, for example. She was a great outdoors person. And she draws some some real differences between their hospitality, their code of honor, uh, their cleanliness, um, all these things that in polite society you would never say today, never. Like, oh, I'm not going to go see her because her house is dirtier than my neighbor down the street. You know, you wouldn't say these kinds of things back then. So what prompted her to be that person? I don't know. I mean, she doesn't seem to be that way. In, in, and I'll give you an example. of the, the short stories that she writes about the African community African-American community near Estill Springs are really interesting stories for the time, for the 1890s. A lot of people in the Melungeon community have called Drumgoole a racist. I think by our standards today, she could very easily be considered that, um, although the Melungeons are not a race. They're a group of people. Um, anthropologists will tell you that race is just a construction, You know that it's not something that's really true. So the word racist didn't even come into our, our dictionaries until ni- in the 19, 1919 or 1920, something like that. Um, that doesn't mean that people didn't think that or use that word, but that's the first time. So Drumgoole would not have been aware of that. Was she prejudiced towards these people? Oh, yeah, she was. <laughs> but all you have to do is read the letters to the editor after her articles came out in the Sunday American. and they will make you cringe because of what was printed in the newspaper. Uh, Racial epithets, horrible, horrible things said, not just about Melungeons, but about people whose skin color is different. 
And it's it's not unusual to go through papers at any time, especially in the South, from the end of the Civil War up until the 1930s and find these kinds of printed comments in the paper. So I'm not making excuses for her. She was definitely prejudiced about these people. She shows absolutely no prejudice against the African-American people that she writes about. She's patronizing because being a white, educated woman of class in the 1890s, she would have been, you know, patronizing because that that's the way society thought, at least a lot of people in society thought at that time. And honestly, a lot of people today think that, and not just about people of color, but people of different ethnicities, different religions. It's just not okay to write it in the paper publicly anymore, at least not until a few years ago. Now it's it's been okay to, to broadcast it on social media. But back then there were no there was nothing like that. You know, there there were no penalties. People could probably just, if the editor was okay with it, they printed whatever it was. So in summary, the reason that she's so controversial is that she said ugly things about people and there was no one there to come back and say, don't do that, <laughs> you know, and we can't excuse that. I, I just think that there's a lot more to her life. She she was 74 years old when she passed away um, and she had a very full life. So the Melungeon summer and spring was six months of her life. And I study her because I think there's a lot, lot many more contributions that, that we could get from her through her literature and through what she did in her life, other than just the Melungeon articles. Kathy, how difficult has it been to portray Dromgul in an honest way in the 21st century? It's been really hard. It's been really hard. I get pushback every time I go to the Melungeon Heritage Association meetings and I present about her. I don't present on her anymore for that reason. I choose to do other things. There are a lot more people doing damage to the Melungeon community like Alex Bledsoe, for example, in his Tufa series. I think that she was a product of her time. As you know, I've, I've been compiling research for a, bibli for a biography for the last four years, and I've never written it because, number one, I've reached a lot of dead ends. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. She, she had this cabin in Estill Springs, uh, which is a little middle Tennessee mountain sort of plateau community. It's not really mountains, but she had a, she had a cabin there and she bought it with her own money. That's the first purchase that she made. And she brought her, her father there. And it was, it, it was, looked like it was in a really beautiful area. She used to have big press parties there. So people from Nashville, all the people from the newspapers, all the journalists would come out and, and they would have tea parties and it was a big do. I mean, there, you can read in the newspaper about how, how people went and they loved it and all these kinds of things. But in 1970, right before I got to college, it burned down. And the people in the, I talked to the historian uh, in, the, in the county historical association office, and he said, we think there were manuscripts in there and letters and journals. There were trunks and trunks of things. But after she died, all of her 
well, a lot of her estate was left to a niece and a nephew, both of whom died really early. So the person who owned the cottage died in 1953 and nobody did anything with it. And I just, I feel in my gut that there was stuff there, you know, and as a researcher, you always want to find this mother load of things. Um, And I have found things here and there, but there are a lot of things I don't know about her. And I think if you write a factual biography, then you have to have the facts. I could probably do a a creative nonfiction and talk about, you know, who she is and what she does. But I'm, I don't really, that's not really who I am. That's not what I want to do. And then there are the Melungeon articles and that whole Melungeon aspect about her life. And what, what do you do? How do you reconcile this behavior from the 1890s with all of this Black Lives Matter? and the Me Too movement, and all of these things that are going on, and especially all of the things that have been going on in the last five years. It's just, it's hard. And I'm not sure I have the energy to do that. I might someday. I'd still like to do maybe an article about her relationship with St. Cecilia's. Um, She had sisters uh, that moved out to Texas in 1894, she established the Waco Women's Press Club in Waco, Texas. And I've been out there and she taught school down there. But then there are big gaps of time where we don't know anything about her, where she was. We know she went to California because of some things that she wrote. But I'm the kind of sort of an OCD person who likes to fill in all these blanks. And I'm just afraid that I'm not going to be able to do that. And you still have to reconcile the Melungeon articles. And that's hard. You can't excuse those. Exactly. Kathy, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners about Will Allen Jomgul? Well, I would say, you know, wait till the book comes out, but I'm not sure that's ever (laughs) going to happen. Um, I love to talk about her. I have a lot of information about her. Um, Another thing that people don't know is in addition to her service in the state legislature, this was an elected position. So she was elected twice and not elected another time. And I thought it was because the Melungeon articles that she wasn't elected, but the dates don't work out. And I think it's because of a short story that she wrote uh, called Fiddlin' His Way to Fame, which talks about these two warring brothers who were both running for governor of Tennessee. And one of the senators in the state legislature stood up and said, she wrote against the mountains and we're, we're not, we don't want her here anymore because she, she wrote again, the mountains and the date did not coincide with the Melungeons. It happened before she wrote and published the Melungeon articles. And I think it was because of that defeat that she, she wanted to do something different with her life. When World War One came in 1917, she volunteered to the U.S. Navy, and she became a yeoman in the U.S. Navy. She was stationed up in Maryland, and she ran the library there. She did patriotic talks. She wrote her column from up there for a year and a half, but it was all about the war effort and how how wonderful our our soldiers were and our sailors were. And she was just kind of an uplifting voice 
And there's a very fuzzy picture of her in her naval uniform. She's saluting. It's very cute, but it's very fuzzy. So I can't <laughs> find the original. Um, but I have found the paperwork and her discharge papers and, and things like that. So she had a really interesting life. And she was she was um, very, very popular in, in Nashville, Tennessee. A lot of people knew when I was initially doing my research, a lot of people had parents who who knew her and loved her poems and and took the paper every every Saturday or Sunday because that's when her column would come out. And all of her poems were published in the Nashville Banner. She had huge, like almost a whole page of, of columns there. And she wrote novels and she wrote a play and she started a literary society. She, she just did a lot of different things. And she wrote editorial pieces for the Nashville Banner as well. I said earlier she wasn't a suffragette. She was. I think she was a passive suffragette. She wrote a story in 19, 1898 called A Humble Advocate. And the main character is beaten by her mountain husband. And she finds where the men are going to vote. So she walks down the mountain and she goes in and she says, I want to vote. And they say, no, you can't vote, blah, blah, blah. And so she she gives this talk about why she wants to vote. And she wants women to be able to vote to pass laws so that men don't beat them. And that was 1898. And she she has another story, forget exactly, I can't remember the title of it, but the woman is, um, her family has been allied politically with this one group for a long time. And she decides that she's going to, if she could vote, she would vote for this other candidate. And she ends up campaigning for him. Um, it's called the War of the Roses. So you've got the Red Rose and the White Rose, the Lancaster and the the, the whole British war the roses thing but it's about a young woman who takes responsibility for her own beliefs and she's going against her family and she's roundly criticized and ridiculed for it so i think in her in her literature she she tries to to uplift women in a in a really positive way yes it's she, definitely from what you've been telling us unless they're melungeon and then <laughs> not so much yeah unfortunately <laughs> Unfortunately, right. I'd like to get her by the shoulders and say, go back. <laughs> you know. I, right? Yes. So, Kathy, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you to learn more information about Will Allen Drumgold? Heather, the best way for people to reach out to me is through my email, which you have. Uh, and if they'll just contact the MHA directly, uh, I'm happy for you to give them that address. I can do that. Kathy, we want to thank you so much for being on our podcast and for sharing your wealth of knowledge on Will Allen Dromgol with all of us. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it and um, I'll see you around. Thank you, Kathy. You've been listening to the Melungeon Voices podcast. On behalf of myself, Heather Andalina, and the entire MHA Executive Committee, we'd like to thank all of those who participated in making this episode possible. For more information, you can visit them on the web at melungeon.org. That's M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N dot O-R-G. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of the MHA. Melungeon Voices is presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. All rights are reserved. <laughs>